You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. We are in Mark chapter 9, which Bob just read for us. And if you have a Bible, if you haven't opened it yet, please open it to that chapter. And we're going to go through this section uh, mostly verse by verse. So we've got a lot to cover here. I think that time is, I actually know. Okay, I got the time right. Okay. Imagine two years ago, January 3rd, 2020. It's a Friday, by the way. And imagine if I sat down with you over coffee or something and I predicted for you the future. I told you that the next couple of years were going to be filled with like this thing called a pandemic, and that you would be living in seasons of restriction to your home, going out into certain areas or parts of town or, or businesses that were closed and open, that you would be living in a society where tension would be rising around such things as like vaccines or masks and, and that there would be awkward conversations and this would last for two years and that even you would be nervous about a sermon starting out with a story about a sickness like COVID-19, okay? Just imagine if that was two years ago and now we sit on this side of that history and we all know exactly what that story is about. We probably wouldn't have believed it. Or maybe you would have thought that I just watched Contagion, the movie, which kind of predicts all of that kind of stuff. But whatever it was, it's looking into the future. And for most of us, looking into the future isn't something that we're really good at. And often, even when someone gets the prediction right, if it's not something that's really pleasing or good in our eyes, whatever that is, it's pretty hard for us to take in. And as we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, we started months ago, and we have been looking at Jesus' vision for his people in the kingdom of God. And the disciples have been the audience that we have kind of been walking with, and we've experienced, been experiencing all of the different things as they've been going through it. And I don't know if you remember this, but all the way back in Mark chapter 1, when, when the whole thing started, when the story began, the disciples kind of walked into this with almost wide-eyed optimism. When Jesus first came to them and said, come with me, I'll make you fishers of men, what did they do? They dropped their nets if they were fishermen or if they were like Matthew, they stopped being a tax collector and they just went with, in Mark chapter 1 verse 17 it says, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men and immediately they left their nets and they followed him. They're like, yes, this sounds like a great plan. And so for chapter after chapter, we've been watching them follow Jesus around and see what he does, seeing miracles, seeing him teach, and they've experienced all kinds of amazing things. And now we're coming again to this chapter, which has like four separate sections in it, but there is a a thread that ties it together, and it's really the same thread that has tied this whole book together. 
And it's this, that Jesus actually has a different vision for his people than what we would expect. The kingdom of God is a way that is very foreign to our natural view and vision for what the world should be. And what we discover, we started this a few weeks back in chapter 8, was that Jesus, through chapters 8, 9, and 10, is kind of turning the story a little bit. It's been building upward. The disciples have been journeying with him. And now the cha- in these chapters, the story is turning where Jesus is trying to directly get them to see what also comes with discipleship and what comes with the kingdom of God. And what we discover over these chapters is they don't really like it. And it's really hard for them to swallow and take in. And yet Jesus wants to gently kind of point them in the right direction. And the direction is, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And it begins in our passage here with the way of the cross. Bob just read these verses. Look again at verse 30 through 32 where Jesus comes to the disciples and foretells what's coming around the corner. So verse 30 again says this, and they went on from there and passed through Galilee and, didn't, and he didn't want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So Jesus in this time is actually trying to stay hidden from the masses. Remember weeks ago, we talked about all the thousands of people that kept finding him. And now he's trying to find these moments where he can be alone with the disciples because, again, he's shifting the storyline. He's saying, here's what's coming. And the first thing that he comes to is the way of the cross. And this is actually time number two of three times where Jesus, in these chapters, is going to address this issue of, here's where my path leads. My path leads as the Messiah, as the Savior, to a cross. And the way of the cross is actually the way of the kingdom. And the disciples, when they hear this, are, well, you can see in verse 32, completely confused. This is the second time now, okay? They're completely confused. And they're so confused that they don't even want to ask Jesus about it. They're like, let's just ignore this topic. He's bringing it up again. Maybe if we ignore it again, he'll forget about it, you know, and the real story will come up. Because they know what this means to take a road to the cross. They know what it means to take a hard road of pain. They have seen probably mob justice happen around them, and it's not pretty. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that before. I've only experienced this once in my life. Mob justice. We were living in Africa at the time, and we were driving down a road, and suddenly this massive crowd came walking down this road that we were driving on, so we pull over, and it made me a little nervous at first because it's a huge crowd of people. Everybody looked like they were kind of really excited about something. It didn't look like it was a dance, okay? It looked like something serious was happening. And it looked like they were dragging like a goat or something. So I thought maybe they're doing like a sacrifice or some sort of activity. Well, as I got closer and as the mob got closer, I realized that they were actually dragging a person. 
and I was really nervous then, okay? So I kind of pulled over, trying to really get out of the way. Someone knocks on my window. We kind of roll down and heard through the screaming, it's okay, it's okay. This is just a thief, and we're just taking care of him. I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll stay to the side. <laughs> Please take care of him. And it was nerve-wracking, scary to see a, a mob kind of act and take on justice and do something violent to someone. There's not something that I would want on anybody, not even someone who's a thief, to come to the hands of a mob. And so these kind of ideas, when Jesus kind of plainly says in verse 31 that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and that they will kill him, like these are the kind of images that are coming into their mind. And nobody wants that. Nobody wants that for anybody. And yet here is Jesus now saying, here is the way of the kingdom of God. Here is the way that you're going to fully enter into it. I'm going to be the first one who's going to walk into that kingdom. And the way that I'm going to enter in is through the cross. And through the violence that is all associated with the cross. And can you see why, really quickly, they're confused? Can you see why, really quickly, they want to reject that reality? That storyline doesn't sound good. And so Jesus is pointing them to a truth that is really hard. So on one hand, this should give us some encouragement because probably all of us have come to the scriptures and have heard things and have read things and have seen things that have been really hard to take in. We've maybe read a passage of scripture and we thought that cannot say what it's saying. That can't be the real truth. That's just too hard for it to be real and to be something that God would actually be for. And that's exactly what's going through the mind of the disciples. When Jesus comes to them with the way of the cross, they say this cannot be the way that the kingdom of God is actually going to come to be. This can't be how God is going to work all his details out for his kingdom to be established. And Jesus regularly wants the disciples to come to him with those questions, with those struggles. But what do they do? They actually hide the fact that they're confused still. And they continue to just kind of put forward their own narrative. So they don't, it doesn't make sense what Jesus is saying. And so they continue to reject it. And they then go forward with their own storyline. Which brings us to the next section, which is the way of greatness and it's redefined for the disciples because look what happens on the road then this so i find this so interesting to to kind of read this again it says they in verse 33 and they came to capernaum and when he was in the house he asked them what were you discussing on the way it sounds like dad and the kids doesn't it it just exactly sounds like that they said but they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be the first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. 
So the disciples are walking on the road, and Jesus is with them, and maybe he's further ahead or something, but they're having this conversation about the who's the greatest of all. We're all kind of captivated by the idea of the greatest, whether it's a sports figure or, or even our own children. We want the greatest or the, you know, the good at least to develop in all of us. And I remember the, we really used to watch these movies a lot. We still sometimes do the Pixar movies. And the Pixar movie that came to my mind was the movie Ratatouille. Remember that one? Where this rat ends up being this like master chef. And the whole movie is about this rat who aspires to greatness. You know, right from the beginning, he's kind of picking trash and puts these amazing combinations of food together because he's like a fine Parisian chef. And so in this movie, somehow you get rooting for this rat that is a chef. And you're like, he can be great, you know, and he can be the greatest chef of all. And, and that's how you get sucked into the Pixar storyline, right? And you're just like hooked. But this allure of greatness is within us all. We all want to be good at what we do, maybe even great at what we do. And we live in a world that is filled with people that are searching in some way for greatness, whether through, through good means or through terrible means. You know, what we're seeing even happen in Europe and in Ukraine is probably rooted in the hearts of people for some sort of greatness. And what we're seeing play out is not like a one-off event in history. In European history especially, this is like the regular routine of history that people who want to be great in some way lead some sort of movement and it ends up spilling into wars and conflicts because they want to be at the top. And so here the disciples are on the road, having heard now for a second time that the kingdom of God comes through suffering, through pain. Their leader is going to go down that road. And what are they talking about? They're talking about who among them is going to be the greatest. Who do you think is going to be like at the top? Okay, Jesus is at the top. But who's going to be second with Jesus? Or maybe who's going to be tied for second with Jesus? There'll be a few of us. That's the argument that they are talking over. And Jesus, in that moment, does what a father is supposed to do or a parent is supposed to do. He takes them aside and teaches them. He practices what Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is a, a good little side lesson here for us to read. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So in this context here, this is like, this is parenting advice essentially coming from Moses. It's a teaching to parents saying, here is how you impart to your children the ways of God, the questions to life. You don't just look for moments to kind of teach them, but you look for every moment to enter in and show what God is doing in the context of life. So whether you're sitting down or whether you're walking or whether you're lying down, you're taking that moment to teach your child. So in our context here in the local church, 
what we provide here, the Sunday school that your kids are enjoying right now, is part of their instruction. And it's meant to help and encourage us as parents. But the primary role is actually for moms and dads to actually have those conversations. Because you're the ones who most of the time are sitting with those kids, walking with those kids, trying to get them to lie down so that they go to sleep at night with those kids, right? You're doing all those things. And, and the teaching here is that's your place. And Jesus now in this situation knows what they're talking about. And what does he do? He does what like a good father will do. He sits down with the disciples and he sees, okay, there's some major confusion here. And maybe there's not even just confusion. There's some rejection of what I'm teaching to you. So I'm going to sit down and take time and explain to you what that looks like. What a, what a great person looks like in the kingdom of God. And it's in two ways. Look again at verse 35. At the second, the last part of verse 35, it says this. If anyone would be first. So you want to be first? You want to be greatest in the kingdom of God? This is how you do it. You must be last of all and servant of all. There's your two ways to do it. Last of all and servant of all. Jesus is saying there's two ways that you enter into greatness in the kingdom of God. And the first is the way of humility. You take the humble position where you choose not to go first of the line. Which is hard for us, isn't it? We love to be first of the line. We're looking for that. We were, we were talking about this the other day. We love like the Disney Fast Pass, right? If you've ever had that. It takes you to the front of the line. That's the whole point of it. That's why we love it. You get this thing and boom, you're in. No waiting. No standing in line, sweating and in the heat with everybody else. You are right there. You get it done. We love that. And here Jesus is saying, no, actually the way is the way of humility. It's going to the back of the line when everything about you, everything within you is saying, I want to get to the front of the line. And not only that, but the second one is that we are called to serve. So Jesus then pulls up for them, you know, the, the physical example that he shows them is a child. So he says, come here, little kid. And he grabs the child and he shows them and he says, this is how it should look. Not like adult perfection, have it all together, know what to do in the situation. Child, which in the first century was kind of just um, a piece of the furniture almost, right? No rights, no voice into the family and how things would go in the business. They were just a child. They're something, they're an investment for the future, that's all. But Jesus says, no, this is what it should look like when you take the way of humility and you take the way of service. Probably the, one of the best examples that Jesus gives is in John 13. We won't read that, but you can look at it yourself. It's the example where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. So in this story, he has this baby, this, this child that he uses as an example. But in John, he actually does something physical for them. They're all sitting there around the table. And he takes the towel like a servant the bowl, the water, and he goes around and he washes their feet. He takes on the place of a servant. And in that story, you'll know that at least Peter just 
loses it, right? Blows a gasket because he can't stand that this is happening. It's so reverse of what he thinks should be going on. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, he should be king. He should be top. He should be number one. That's how you do it. And Jesus is saying, no, actually the way of the kingdom is humility is service. So in our church, we also want to not only foster this these values and this ethic of humility and service, but in the leaders of our church also, we want to be leading by example and serving. And in the scriptures, we're given guidance on how to do that. So when it comes to elders in the church, we talked about this and have been talking about it for the last year. Elders are really, it's clear what they're supposed to be like. It gives clear direction in the book of 1 Timothy and in Titus that the character of the elders actually really matters. And they make it clear that this arrogance and this kind of like being the top of the list is not supposed to be in the character of those who are leading. In Titus 1.7 it says, He must not be arrogant. They make it really clear. Rather they should choose the way of humility. They should also be self-sacrificing. In Matthew chapter 20, let me just turn over to these verses and read them for you. I think they're on the screen. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus again talks about how tempting this is to kind of lead in the way of the world. And in verse 25 of Matthew 20, he says this, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise over authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So Jesus reminds the disciples again. This is how it looks. The greatest among you is the one who serves. The one who takes the position and the posture of a servant. So why is it so difficult for churches often to experience this? And maybe the question you're asking is, is this really how citizens is going to be moving forward? As we kind of progress and take steps together as a church, what is it going to look like for us? How are we going to lead? What is the culture going to be like in our church? And it's a mystery that God actually chooses to partner with people, okay? Because if you know yourself... Hopefully you would admit this too, that we make mistakes. Like we all make mistakes. Whether you are leading, following, in the middle, anywhere on the spectrum, we all make mistakes and find it difficult to lead totally committed to God 100% of the time. And yet there's this mystery that God chooses to partner with people, to accomplish his purposes with people And so we need to continually, regularly come back and focus our minds on the right things. In the book, The Subtle, I wrote that title wrong. I'm trying to think what the book's actually called now. It's a book about spiritual abuse. How about we go with that, okay? Because the title is not, I know it's not right what I've written here. But it's a book about spiritual abuse and it talks about what it looks like in churches when that exists and the damage that it can do. And maybe there's some even here who have experienced that before where leaders, 
practice forms of spiritual abuse on the people in their church and the damage that it can create. And the authors come with a number of you know, ways to kind of mitigate and fight against that. And two of the ones that really stood out for me were this. The first one is this idea of practicing one anothering. And that's a, that's a phrase from the scriptures. There are over 60 commands to us as a congregation, to every single one of us, of ways that we practice the Christian life to one another. So we give grace to each other. We encourage one another. We practice all kinds of different one anotherings. And these authors say, if you make that one of the main focuses of the church, you will not lift up people higher than they should be lifted up. Because there is a, a equality among God's people. Because every single one of us as believers have gifts and have practices that we all need for each other. So we are dependent on one another. And that's the point of the body of Christ. That every single one is needed. Whether you know your spiritual gift or not. Whether you're confident or you're not. Whether you're feeling good or not. The scriptures say you belong and you are needed. But not only one anothering. The second is maybe the most important. And it's this. That the focus of the church must be on the great shepherd. So... Elders are called shepherds or overseers, but over and above all of us and all the leaders and all the different types of categories, the greatest focus within the church should be the great shepherd, which is Jesus. He must be the focus. He must be the thing that is lifted up on Sunday mornings. You shouldn't leave here thinking Citizens Church is like the pinnacle, or Darcy is the pinnacle, or name that name, whoever it is, is the pinnacle. You should leave here regularly thinking, Jesus is the great shepherd. Jesus is everything. Our hope is in him. Whether the heat is on at Citizens or not, our hope is in Jesus. So may we move forward as a church with a culture of service and love where everybody feels that they have a part to play, where everybody knows that they are needed so that God will protect us from the allure of our own greatness, but that we will lift up the greatness of Christ, as difficult as that is to take in. So, moving on in the text here, there is a example then of almost like a flat-out rejection of what Jesus is just teaching, okay? So, it'd be great to just end the message there, Maybe some of you would like that. To end it right there, okay? The, you know, it's clear, yes, Jesus, the greatness of Jesus. And the disciples all got it and they moved forward. But no, okay? It doesn't actually go that smooth. Look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. There's your key line. He's not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against me is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. John is saying, listen, there's someone who's doing what we are supposed to be doing. And we told him to stop because he's not with us. He's not part of our group. And this kind of like tribalism and 
breaking apart of people into, you know, groups and dividing and camps is not just a modern day phenomenon. This is something that we see happening throughout history. People will say, who is with me and who is against me? And in this case, John is saying, this guy, interestingly, is doing what they couldn't do in chapter 9. He's casting out demons, but he's not with us. And so he wants to purge him, divide him. And it's a world that we actually live in today, this world of groups and divisions where you're maybe with some people for a certain reason or you're against people for another reason. We've lived in an era maybe where people kind of thought, I don't know if it was like after September 11th or, you know, kind of a couple of decades now of, man, things are going good. And if everybody would just kind of take some of the values of liberal democracies that we'll all just move towards this future utopian world where everybody really gets along. We've all got the same values. We all kind of think the same. And there's peace and harmony in the world. And now we've had these things like the pandemic. And we've had this, even as of late, the war in Ukraine, which is kind of shattering this mindset. Mark Sayers puts it this way. What marks the Western secularist progressive myth is a religious-like belief that human perfectibility and social progression will continue until we reach utopia. That's the, that's the new religion of our day, that if we can all just kind of get our thoughts on the same page, if we can all just think the same way, we'll just have peace and harmony. And what keeps kind of bumping up against that is the reality of human nature. And the reality that we see even here in John's little testimony of you're not with me and you're not with me. So we're going to separate and there may even be some tension between us. And Jesus is saying, listen, when it comes to the work of the kingdom of God, when you see the spirit working, it might look different. It might be a different church. It might be a different context. But if Christ is working, if Christ is the source of that work, then he's saying, bring it in, man. It's, it's a work of God. And so for us, as one of many churches, even in this town, just thinking of our own context, if we hear and see God working in another place, if it is centered around Jesus and his work, then we should embrace that and see that. Now, we're also called as believers to discern and kind of think that through. There's a lot of people that tag anything to the name of Jesus. But in this context, Jesus is saying, listen, don't be driven towards divisions where it's unnecessary. Don't be drawn into camps where you don't need to. Which then brings us to our last section here. Which is the way of the disciple. And maybe this is the... Um, most challenging verses. They're like you read them and you're kind of like, man, what is going on here? And so we're, we'll try our best here to kind of wrap up with these callings to us as disciples. Let's read them again just to remind ourselves of what they're saying. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Okay, just remember, that's Jesus talking, okay? Verse 43. 
And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, who will, you make, who will make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. All right. What are we talking about here? We're talking about like millstones being tied to people's necks and sinking to the bottom of the river. We're talking about cutting off pieces of our bodies or going to hell. Then we're talking about salt and fire and salt is good. There's a lot here, okay? And I'm not sure if I'm going to clear it all up for you, but we're going to do it in three parts, okay? Because this is a sermon, so we're just going to wrap this up in three parts, okay? Here's the overarching principle with all of this. Jesus is saying, this is the way of the disciple. You want to be a disciple. You want to see the kingdom of God come into reality, into your life. There is a way for you to live that is a serious calling. And he begins with this, that the people who follow you matter. So he begins by saying, you're a disciple of Jesus. You call yourself a Christian. People would maybe know you as a believer. They know that you go to church. Jesus is saying, there are people who are watching you. And when you play kind of like a a 50-50 game, or maybe you play like, I'm a Christian, like 30% of the time, or maybe 70% of the time. On Sunday, I'm all in. I'm 80% a Christian, 20% still got a few problems to deal with, okay? Okay. Jesus is saying, when you play that kind of a game and you dance with the idea of discipleship, you run the risk actually of leading other people astray. And that act of leading someone down a path that is not the kingdom of God, Jesus says, if that's you, and let's be honest, that's all of us, okay? But Jesus is saying, if that's you, it's better for you to have a stone tied around your neck and for us to drop you off a boat. Whoa, those are some serious words, man. What is Jesus saying here? Isn't this still like the loving Jesus that we all like? Isn't this the Jesus that we all want to be like our best friend and hang out with all the time? This is the same Jesus. And here's what's the beauty behind this Jesus is he doesn't mince words. He tells us the truth. We might like words that are more flattering We might like words that sound a little bit more like a friendly Jesus, but Jesus isn't going to play that game. Jesus is going to tell us the truth. And he says, the kingdom of God is for disciples, not for perfect people. It's for disciples. But he says, when you come into the kingdom of God, come in. Don't play this game. Don't play a halfway game. Because Jesus isn't playing it. Maybe the rest of us play it. And maybe the rest of us even like believe it sometimes. But Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is for disciples. All of you are welcomed in. But when you come in, 
come in as a follower because those who follow you and the things that you do matter. So if you're a parent, like all, many of us are parents, that obviously our kids are watching us. Okay, so we have an audience all the time. But if you don't have kids, then you still have friends or maybe the, the life that you lead online, the things that you say, the things that you like, the things that you, those things are not just nothing. We've come to believe that they are, that we can just do them and we can say them in, in, a, in a vacuum. But those are us. Those words actually carry meaning. And so Jesus says, those who follow you matter. And so you being a follower and a disciple matter as well. But then he goes on. And it's this. The second one is this, that your choices matter. He goes on to give all these examples of strong action that needs to be taken so that it doesn't lead to a life of destruction or what Jesus says here. He talks about actually being thrown into hell. So he talks about, you know, cutting your foot off or cutting your hand off or plucking your eyes out. Okay, Jesus is not advocating that we do that, okay? You shouldn't leave here on Sunday today thinking, maybe this one's going to go, you know? <laughs> this hand is a problem. Actually, they're both a problem, okay? Because if we followed this to the end, we would all be handless and we would all be eyeless. That's, that's just the reality of it, okay? This is, this is a um, attention-getting hyperbole. Okay, Jesus is not calling for us to actually do these things. But he's saying the choices that we make really matter. And most of us who have lived more than 10 years know that. The choices that we make really matter. When we make choices, they can lead to our own destruction, which sometimes we can handle that. But they can also lead to the destruction of others, those who we love and people that we care about. And so the, the choices that we make really matter. Even the smallest ones. And that's why Jesus is using this hyperbole. And I've, I've seen before on YouTube. That, and maybe you've seen this before. This experiment that's been done with like dominoes. Where you know I think it's teachers who make these YouTube videos. Where you can take a tiny domino. I saw the one the other day. It's like five millimeters. That's the first one. And then the last one, about 12 dominoes, they keep growing in size. They're doubling in size. The last one is like a meter and a half. And so then the guy takes the first domino. Tick, it's five millimeters, right? Tick, one little thing. And, and it keeps pushing all the way till the last one, a meter, boom, falls over. I don't think the teacher is thinking this, but the principle is there. One tiny decision, one tiny choice matters. And it can lead to something giant falling apart right before your eyes. And so Jesus says, this is what it looks like to be a disciple. Every choice really matters. And take that principle with seriousness. So much so that he, you know, uses like this imagery of cutting it away. Because it really matters. And then lastly, he says, not only... Do your choices matter? Not only does it matter to those who follow you, but also your trials matter. So he's using all this, this Old Testament imagery, which is not familiar to us. We read verses about, you know, how we're salted with fire and salt is good. And we're like, what is that? Is it like cooking a steak or what is he talking about? And in the Old Testament, 
when sacrifices were made, you can go look back at some of the Old Testament scriptures. Salt was mixed in with the meats and with the grains. It was brought in to the actual sacrifices. And so what Jesus here is saying is, your life is actually meant to be a sacrifice. That's language from Romans 12. But he's saying your life filled with salt and pain, fiery trials and difficulty, all those hardships, all those things is actually God working in your life. All those trials and difficulty is actually God doing something. The pain that you experience, the difficulty that you and I experience is not for nothing. It's part of our journey of discipleship. And remember, all of this section, these these 20 verses, is Jesus trying to get the disciples and us to see that the kingdom of God is a road of difficulty. It's a road of sacrifice. It's a road of hardship. But it's the good road. It's actually in the long run a road that leads to life and leads to his kingdom. Let's just close with this. Because I don't know about you, but this message is a difficult one to, it's a difficult one to preach. It's a difficult one to take in. It should be. If you're really facing the truth that is in these verses here, it it should probably run up against a bit of a hard wall because it's hard to take in. The disciples are so much like us that it's hard to take them in. And Elizabeth Elliot wrote a, a book called No Graven Image. And in that book, she tells a story of a missionary. And the missionary's name was Margaret Sparhawk. And she was a missionary to uh, Ecuador. And she was involved in translation and wanted to translate the Bible into multiple languages. And so along the way, she was finding people who could help her with these languages. And so the story goes that she was looking for a long time for someone to help her with the language. And she found a man named Pedro. And it was like, yes, finally, I've found the person who can help me with this. And so in her story, she talks about the time where she's going to go meet with Pedro and begin to work and kind of, you know, it was like the first step forward in this monumental project that she's heading into. And so on the bus ride out to see Pedro, she's thinking to herself, man, Lord, I've been waiting for this the whole time. And she's thinking back over the years of preparing to be a missionary and raising support and all the people that like prayed for her and gave to her. And then she's thinking about all the months that she spent in Ecuador and looking for Pedro. And then finally like Pedro was there. And so everything is just kind of clicking along. And she's like, God, thank you. All the work that I've been a part of, it's all coming into place now. And so she came to Pedro's house. And when she got to see Pedro, he was sick. And he actually had this um, wound on his leg and was really in a rough state. And so she ends up giving him, because she had some nursing training, and so she gives him an antibiotic, gives him a shot of an antibiotic, and instantly he goes into an allergic reaction. And he's laying there, and it's not looking good. I don't know what an allergic reaction looks like, but from the sounds of the story, it's not looking good. And suddenly, like, the whole family is coming around, and, and the wife and the kids, everybody's, like, freaking out. They're like, what's happening? Like, things are getting worse. Can't you give him something else to combat this? And she's essentially, she's like, 
I got nothing else. I don't have anything. So she starts praying, right? What else would she do? She starts praying in that moment, and she's like, God, what is happening here? This is like the hopes of all the work, everything that was coming together, and then now you've got Pedro here, and his wife is, is you know, really scared, and the kids are there. God, what are you doing? Please, God, would you heal him? And he gets worse in the moment, right after the prayer. It gets worse. And the wife is like yelling at the missionary, saying like, what are you doing? He's going to die. And she starts doing like the village death wail right before her. And again, Margaret, in, in kind of shock now, is just begging the Lord to do something. God, would you make a way? Everything's going to fall apart. And Pedro ends up dying right there before her. And in the story that Elizabeth Elliot is writing, she talks about Margaret and the, the shock that this missionary woman is experiencing. All of her hopes in what Pedro was going to be a part of. And the confusion of like, God, what, what is happening here? Don't you want people to have the word of God in their language? And kind of wondering and wondering. And Elizabeth Elliot says that the story almost ends with no silver lining. There's like no like positive. Or like there's no way to kind of redeem this kind of story. Other than Margaret at the end of her story herself says this. She has this one quote that Elizabeth Elliot says kind of pulls it all together. It says, God, and this is kind of an explanatory sentence. God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. But if, on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. And that was a sentence that Elizabeth Elliot said got her into a lot of hot water. People didn't like that idea of how is it that in the worst of circumstances, a missionary woman could come to discover that God was actually the center of even that terrible situation. That God was the one who was at work. Earlier, she had kind of used God for her own purposes. Even though they were good. They were missionary purposes. But now she understood that God was actually at the center of this. And Tim Keller, who tells this story as well and gives kind of some kind of insight into it, writes it this way. He says, This is a God of our own creation. A counterfeit God. Such a God is really just a projection of our own wisdom, of our own self. In that way of operating, God is our accomplice, someone to whom we are related as long as he's doing what we want. And if he does something else, we want to fire him or unfriend him as he would any personal assistant or acquaintance who was insubordinate or incompetent. Keller is saying what Elizabeth Elliot is writing, what Margaret the missionary discovered, that God will have his way. And so when we come to a truth like the way of the cross, and when we come to the reality of self-sacrifice and a road of humility, it's going to run up against all of us. And yet Jesus is saying, the words of Jesus are saying to us, it is the road of the kingdom. It is the way of the kingdom of God. And if this is God's way, it's the right way. And the prayer for all of us is, Lord, would you just, 
just a little bit sink that truth into our heart today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for thank you for these hard passages. And Lord, I pray that the truth behind it exemplified for us in the person and the work and the life and death of Jesus would come straight into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.